I'm going to read to you out of Matthew 22, 36-40 to start. If you want to turn there. I think we get this idea that everyone else has a perfect community or that their homes are perfect or their lives aren't struggling daily, but we see our own faults up close constantly, um, and so we just go to comparison because it's what we know. But without a roadmap or a source for community, we could get really lost. So we're going to go and look at a little bit of the design of community for us first tonight. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right, so a Pharisee, who is also actually a lawyer, comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? Basically, tell me what to do so I can make sure that I'm doing it. He's a rule keeper. He's a list maker. I'm like this. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Like, I tell my boss that. I tell my husband that. Give me the list. Tell me the priorities, and I'll get them done. So I get this guy. Like, just, Jesus, just tell me what do I have to do to, to be in a good place. And Jesus answers him, and he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and then go and love your neighbor. So when we hear that, or if you're like me, um, I want to start with the neighbor part, because that's tangible. I can, I can do that. It's a measurable goal. It's a box I can check. I can make a meal. I can donate to shelter. I can volunteer at my kid's school. I can cook a vat of spaghetti sauce. And while all that stuff is really important, it can't be what fuels us. Um, I, I grow a garden. I'm really big into gardening. So this year I had a massive garden on our property. And we enjoyed the fruit of our labors. We had flowers and vegetables and all those beautiful things. But if you go into a garden just wanting the fruit of the garden, like that's fine, but there has to be work that goes into that garden. Someone worked the soil. Someone planted the seeds. Someone weeded it. And so if we want the fruit of community and the fruit that comes with loving our neighbors and engaging our community and with each other, there has to be something else that fuels that fruit. That fruit just doesn't appear on the There has to be something that fuels that growth. So if we forget that first thing, the second thing will be really broken. If we forget the first part of love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, the loving your neighbor part is going to be pretty broken. The second part could last for a little bit, maybe on our good intentions or our philanthropy, but it eventually will exhaust itself. It will either turn in on itself, becoming selfish or self-pitying, all oh, these people just want so much from me, or it will burn out in exhaustion thinking that we need to be the savior of the world. So wanting to love our neighbors or wanting to exist within community is simply not motivation enough to fuel or sustain lifelong Christian community. We will get tired because without the first part, the second part ends up just being about us and what we think we need to do to make God happy. So we're going to spend a little bit of time tonight talking about the first part. Love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, and your soul, and your mind, because this is what really we were created to do. In Genesis 1, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 1 we see that God created us in his image, which means a few things. One, it means we don't need other people to be whole. We are whole. We are made in the image of a 
fully whole and complete God, which means a girl doesn't need a husband to be complete. She's complete by the nature of being made by a fully and completely whole God. She doesn't have like a missing piece. She doesn't need to have children to be complete. She's not incomplete without having children. She doesn't have a missing part of her. God created her whole. Woman was created in the image of God, whole, reflecting his character, his communicable attributes, and an image bearer here on earth. God makes man, God makes woman, and he says it is very good indeed. But also, God himself exists in community. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The Trinity is a beautiful picture of perfect community in God. God exists in the nature of three persons who perfectly operate with one another, as one another, always loving one another. Jesus said he does nothing without his Father. He doesn't act. He doesn't speak without the Father. There's no competition or power struggle because they are one. Tim Keller said, We believe the world was made by a God who is a community of persons who have loved each other for all eternity. You were made for mutually self-giving, other-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. And then, because God is love and perfectly happy, he created the world out of love and joy, not out of need. He created man, he created woman, and he designed for us to enjoy self-serving, other-directed community with him and with one another. He created Adam and said, it isn't good that he's alone. Not that he's incomplete, but it isn't good. We were created and designed to exist and thrive in community in him and with each other. And God doesn't share community with us because he's lonely. He does it because he loves us. So community centered in loneliness will eventually burn out. But community centered in love will be fueled. But sin broke that. Eve, who was fully whole in the garden, had every possible thing that she could want or need. She questioned if what God has given her was actually good enough. Genesis 3 says that she saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and desirable for obtaining wisdom. And so when we look to compare our lives with the world or others, and it's different, and then we convince ourselves that what God has given us, the boundaries he's placed in our lives and the gifts he said are resounding yes to, we convince ourselves they're not enough. So instead of enjoying the people who are in our lives, we do what Eve did. We start saying, well, God didn't give me enough. He didn't give me enough to be joyful here. He didn't give me enough in my life to be happy today. Eve questioned the goodness of God and his law. She questioned the goodness of his law, if his word was good enough for her. And then sin came in with a crushing blow onto mankind. And we have felt that fracture ever since. Sin marred our joy in community with one another and with God. We could no longer approach him. We could no longer be near him like we could at the beginning. And now there is continual strife, tension, competition, gossip, jealousy, and all these fractures between us. So a plan was set in motion to restore his people back to fellowship with him, back to relationship with him. And Jesus sacrificed himself so we could return to that. Now, I have some good friends, but if one of them walks away from our community of friends because of something they choose to do, 
the chances of me saying, no, 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 please come back to our group of friends. I'll die if that means you could come be with us. Like, that's absurd. I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm probably going to be like, bye. Like, you're creating drama. Have fun. Um, but that's what Christ did. Jesus, the Son, came to restore the joy of our relationship with God again. He came to be the perfect friend to us and then laid down his life so that we could be restored. We are called to be in deep friendship community with God. Abraham was called a friend of God. And this isn't like like we think modern day, like BFF friends, like buddies, or Jesus is my homeboy. I don't know if you've seen those t-shirts. That's not what I'm talking about. This is deep, true friendship, open, vulnerable friendship that is also more loyal and constant than any friend on earth. This is Hesed love. Hesed is a Hebrew word for love that really means covenantal love, loyal love. My pastor calls it love without an exit strategy. And we can understand to a degree that God, he's holy, he's above us, and we should worship him, and we can understand that Jesus came and lived among us, and we get that we're adopted as children into the family of God. But I really wonder if we understand the depth of friendship and community that we're given through Christ and in Christ. Jesus came to give us friendship. C.S. Lewis says, friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. And we can do that with each other easily, right? So you like coffee? Me too. Or you like going to Target and spending too much money? Me too. <laughs> or if you're like me, you like staying up till 2 a.m. reading about how to make soil more, more fruitful and maximum for your growth? Not me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you lost me. No, I'm the only one. I know, so. <laughs> but what does it mean that Christ is our friend? <coughs> Matthew eleven nineteen. We have that verse. Are you still doing verses? We don't have to do verses. I'll just read it. No. Matthew eleven nineteen says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so first, we respond to his love by understanding that we are in the crowd of tax collectors and sinners. We never really graduate out of that category. We mature, yes, but we're always sinners loved by God. What the Pharisees got wrong in that statement isn't that Jesus wasn't hanging out with those people. Jesus was. It was that they didn't realize that they, too, were in that crowd of people. They should have been considered in that crowd of people. As long as we don't realize what an incredible <coughs> mercy it is that God, the creator of the universe, in whom all things live and breathe and have their being, that he comes to dwell among us, the stained, the corrupt, the sinners, the doubters, the prideful, the broken, and be our friend, we will never respond to his love with true love in return. Listen, it took me years to understand this. For the first chunk of my early faith life, up until I was about 22, I understood that God loved sinners. But I think a part of me thought that he wanted like the A-team for his, for his people. And so as far as everyone else was concerned, I could play the part. I knew performance. I knew all the right words to say. I knew the songs to sing. I read all the books. I lived a good life. So for me, it wasn't an absurd question to ask, could God love me? Because I thought, sure, I'm a good option. Why not? 
But then my world crashed. So at 20, I had a really dear friend who I was serving in full-time ministry with die of cancer when he was 20 years old, who believed till the end that God would heal him. I burned myself out in full-time traveling ministry by the age of 21. I gained 40 pounds in four months. I was incredibly depressed, and I felt like God had swindled me. He was, she tricked me. And at 22, I had a massive moral failure. I was caught in an affair with a married man, and I lost <coughs> my entire ministry. At that point, I was recording uh, my second album. I had trips planned internationally, and everything just crumbled around me. And I was humiliated. I felt so lost. And I ran, because I didn't know what else to do. For years, I ran. And I got into a bad marriage that I had no business being in. And shortly after my daughter was born, I was abandoned and left as a single mom. So from age 20 to 26, I tasted death, adultery in my choices and in other people's choices, depression, sin, date rape, different kinds of abuse, anxiety, shame, divorce. And at 26, I was a single mom thinking, what just happened? Where did my life go? How did I screw it up this badly? It's like when I give my two-year-old now some like, chalk to draw and I leave the room for a minute and then I come back and there's literally chalk everywhere. Like on things I didn't even know you could write on or there's like food that's appeared out of nowhere and he's eating it. I'm like, where did you, what happened? Well, I was gone. I was gone for two minutes. Like what just happened? And I tell people it felt like someone turned the lights on in my life. And I looked around and saw only destruction. I heard a friend describe it as night vision. Like, you know how you think you can see in the dark and your eyes kind of adjust? But really, you're like seeing very little of what's actually there. And so when the lights came on, I could see. I saw bodies of people who I had hurt in my wake. I saw grief I had never felt. I saw sin that I never repented for. My own blood marking every door frame. And I felt like God was like, are you done? You done now? And I remember sitting under the teaching of Matt Chandler after this all happened, and I felt like someone had inoculated me with truth. I was sick. I was sick spiritually. I was weak. I was malnourished. I felt incapable of finding my way to any kind of normal. And Chandler preached the gospel clear like a lighthouse on a dark ocean when I was trying to find shore, like a bell ringing in the pitch of night, this way, turn this way. And I remember telling a friend, if this is true, if I'm understanding the gospel correctly, this is literally the best news that I could have ever heard. This is actually very, very, very good news. And she was like, yes, Andrea, that's the point. <laughs> and so it was only after that that I really understood that I was in the crowd of sinners all along. It wasn't as though I was this Christian rock star and then slipped and got some mud on me. I was born into mud. I was raised in mud. I dined on mud until Jesus came and found me. And so only then could I really understand what it means that Jesus comes as a friend of sinners. Only then could I give him my heart and learn to love him with all of my heart, 
my mind and my soul because he had won it. He claimed it as his. And then I had to understand that Jesus didn't just come to make all things right, but to live among us as one of us so that when I come to him with my fractured, broken pieces, I can look at him on the cross and say, you too? I thought I was the only one. So when I wept over the loss of my friend, he was there. You too? When I faced suffering and I didn't want to walk through it, you too? And I was a single mom for five years before I remarried. And pretty fre frequently, my daughter and I had conversations about her absent father. The ache was very heavy for her and hurt. And she would weep and ask, why? Why, why isn't he writing? Why don't I hear from him? Where did he go? And I remember the day that it occurred to me that she was able to share in the sufferings of Christ in a way that even I couldn't. And I told her, sweetheart, Jesus understands. He knows what it's like to feel the absence of the Father. To ask, why? Where did you go? And she could now say to Jesus, you too? So Jesus on the cross who suffered all of the pangs and consequences of our sin could say to us, I get it. I felt it. I know how it feels. And so when the lawyer comes to him and says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, love me first with all you have, all of your energy, your thoughts, your emotions, your time. Because he knows that our greatest joy, our greatest peace, our greatest longing to be fully known comes through him. He knows that we will spend our lifetimes trying to love everything else and exhaust ourselves. And he's saying, stop. I'm going to tell you off the bat where to get that fixed. Start with me. And we can find joy in community with friends, but it won't fix the fracture. <clears throat> it won't mend the break. It will not satisfy the emptiness that was literally designed to be communing with God. But how? How do we find this again? Well, I'm so glad you guys asked. <laughs> There's a few ways. One, we need to return to the Lord. We return where we've wandered in our passions, where we've wandered in love, where we've given said loyalty to the things of this earth, but told God, I'll get back to you when I have time. We need to return loving him, return to loving him with all of our hearts, not just a part of it that's convenient. When we love him, when our affection is his, it's a whole lot harder to look at our neighbors and start measuring. When we walk in the identity of being wholly loved, we are free to wholly love. We need to return to knowing him with all of our mind. Study the word. The Bible isn't a book of inspirational stories or verses that we can quickly Google and slap on a situation. Just the other day I was reading in the morning while my daughter was getting ready for school, and I was reading in Judges about the story of Ehud. Do you guys know the story of Ehud? Some of do you probably do. <laughs> but Ehud, I'll tell you real quick, Ehud is a warrior for Israel who God raised up to take revenge on a Moab king, okay? The verses basically like, say outright, the Moabite king was a really fat man, okay? So I'm not being insulting, that's exactly what scripture says. Ehud follows him to the bathroom, 
and he stabs him through his gut, and the fat basically like wraps around the sword. I know. I saved this for after dinner. Okay, yeah. okay. sorry, not working. Okay. And his lower intestines spill okay. out all over the place. Okay, I'm done. So I'm done. I'm done. It's I read that. Yeah, it's yeah, really. What's the problem? Really, yeah. I don't understand. Um, but I read that to my daughter before school, and I was like, okay, sweetie, have a good day. And remember, when life gets hard, be an Ehud. Like, no! <laughs> I don't want a phone call from school that's like, um, your daughter followed some kid into the bathroom. Like, Stab no. him in the gut? Yeah. The Bible is not a book of inspirational stories. It's not chicken soup for the Christian soul. It's the entire story of how God saves his people and sends himself to be their rescue. It's where he's chosen to reveal his character to us. What he wants us to know about him. It's not a map. It's not a survival guide. It's not a reference book. It's living and active, full of the power of God. So we should be eager to read, eager to study, eager to know him. And there might be days where it's only a few verses. It might mean meditating on one verse. Lord, what does it mean to be a tree planted by streams of living water? I'm going to think about that all day, God. What does that mean? There might be seasons where you can study and dig. And there's going to be other seasons where you're just chewing on the same chapter for a few weeks at a time. It's still the same thing. It's still the word. But we should be women who engage our minds in knowing God. If we treated our relationships on earth the same way we, tr we treat our relationship with God, we'd be in really sorry shape. If I said to my husband, babe, I love you. And I love the way you make me feel. I love coming home to you when I'm sad or coming to you when I need money or help. But the rest of the time, I don't really want to talk to you. Like, I'm getting that need met elsewhere. I'm good. Uh, I'll give you the credit if, you know, something good happens. But I don't really talk. I don't want to talk about, like, who you are. I kind of find that boring. I don't really want to know, like, how you got here. That's really boring. Um, I don't want to know much else about you. But I'll hit you up. If I need some cash. Uh, that's a terrible marriage. Yet we have no problem treating God that way. We should love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind. And we should be bringing our soul, the piece of us that is eternal, to him. We can do this through prayer and worship. Prayer that consistently and daily turns our inner compass back to him. We are so prone to wander. Prayer and worship that realigns our system with him. Prayer that meditates on who he is. Prayer that draws near even when we have no words. Now, I'm an imperfect parent, flawed, broken. But you know what I love? I love when my kids come up and sit next to me and don't say anything and just sit next to me. They're not asking me for anything. They're not trying to get something, get me to go. Like, they just want to be with me. And if I'm an imperfect, flawed parent, and I love that, how much more does God say, just come, just come to me. You don't even have to say anything. I just want to be near you. I want you to want to be near me. Prayer that draws near with imperfect words. The Spirit prays when we don't know what to say. So we can practice this, and we can learn to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul, without any pressure, because we know this, we will absolutely fail at this. And yet, he holds us to the end. He knows we'll do this imperfectly, which is why he came. 
John 13, 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He is the truest friend. When we fail in every way that we can, he sticks closer. When we grow weary, when our faith fails, he holds steady. He perseveres. He anchors us. So that we're free to learn how to love him. Like kids, learning how to love. How to step into community with the God who designed us. How to forsake the loves of this world, the distractions of this life. And then find our joy in him first before we go back to the rest of the world. We can't give bread if we don't go to the one who provides it. We can't be free to genuinely love one another if we are anchored in the love of Christ. We could plan the prettiest brunch, have the best of friends, and we'll still leave aching for something because we were created to be whole in him and holy his first with all of our hearts and minds.